Chapter 4 of My Experiences in a Lunatic Asylum. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carol Cotter. MerlotTranslations.com. My Experiences in a Lunatic Asylum by Herman Charles Merivale. Chapter 4. My first acquaintance with the warder, whom I regarded, I do not know very well why, as a sort of master jailer among his fellows, was made upon my road to the asylum. I was escorted to London from the forest by my adhesive body-servant, and by the young doctor whose charge I was leaving, who had formally certified my insanity. As I have said, he told me when we parted that he held the step taken to be wrong, and wished it to be avoided. I was ill, he thought, and needed care. I failed to see, under these circumstances, how he was justified in signing the certificate. He was young, unskilled, a stranger to me, but a week or two before, and I had lived with his wife and family. Whether any pressure was put upon him I do not know, and had rather not inquire. It is enough for my purpose quietly to state that I am to this hour in the dark as to the details of the business, and that I was consigned to a madhouse, against his will, on the order of a doctor who did not believe me mad. Three authorities on lunacy had stated but a short time before that I was in no danger of being so, nor was I, till the madhouse made the danger. Such is the law. He escorted me to London, and we parted there, at the terminus the confidential warder met us from the asylum, and took his place. The last I saw of him was that, as he ran fast along the platform, he washed his hands with invisible soap, expressively, as of me and my concerns. He guessed something of what he had done, I suppose, though I hope not all, and thought that I was going forth into the outer darkness for evermore. My companions were well fitted to conduct me there. The forbidding personality of my special servant is still at times a presence in my thoughts, and the other afterwards was to haunt me still more. He was a rough, red-bearded, well-looking fellow enough, an old colonial squatter, and, as I remember him, very sufficiently good-natured and good-hearted. He was very fond of beer and great at collecting shilling novels from all quarters. When, in the latter days of my imprisonment, he was told off to keep a special watch over me, I grew to shrink from and to dread him, in my very weakness, like a whipped child. He was kindly, but too big, and I was afraid of him. How many fears of the same sort must harass and perplex all those darkened lives is another of the sealed mysteries of the English Bastille. I associated him so closely with my first coming, I remembered with a vision at once so dim and clear how he had curiously examined me from the opposite seat of the carriage as the train sped on in the darkening winter evening. Through what country I knew not, to what destination I had no care to ask. When the doctor whom I had left had hinted where I was to go, I had failed to understand him. Had he told me in more direct words, I could not have believed in such a thing being done. I could not have believed in its possibility, as on looking back it baffles my understanding now. 
I have read many tales and many histories which turn upon the abuse of lettres de cachet in the famous anti-revolutionary days. Will anybody tell me the difference? It seems to me that all that could be done by their means can be done under certificates here and now, and legally justified afterwards over and over again. The Bastille itself could scarcely hold its prisoners more closely than the establishment wherein I lived, and scarcely harder could it have been for any echo of complaint or suffering to reach the outer world. Buried and forgotten we lay there, like dead men out of mind. Of the farcical visits of inspection made by Her Majesty's commissioners, I shall have something presently to say. Their manner of discharging their solemn duty is, to my mind, in the whole round of wrong the worst feature of all. Whilst I was being thus spirited away through the heart of London, with scores of warm-hearted friends within unconscious hail, who would have raised a riot to save me if they had known anything of the truth, I knew as little of the fate before me as the inconvenient kinsman on his road to the old Bastille. Had I known, weak as I was, I should have resisted. And with what result? What is the result to those who do righteously resist? For there must be some who do. On my second apprehension, which I shall describe in its place, I should have known. But I was drugged by authority, as effectually and deliberately as ever was heroine of a novel, and brought back to my prison from the north of England, under the influence of opium. More of this in time. Let me return to my first journey. There were my warders winking and blinking, my private domestic pouring into the ears of the other, who listened with the indifference of a man accustomed to the ways of nameless beings like me his own version of my private history, and making grabs at me in the dark when we came to a tunnel, to create a prejudice in my favour. I remember dimly wondering what it was about, expecting the men to handcuff me, vaguely dreaming of the charms of bed and of a home, speculating somewhat why I had none. Of that journey I remember little more, except eating savoury jelly at Waterloo Station, so oddly do trifles impress one in the most critical moments of life. The next turn of the kaleidoscope pictures me seated in an armchair, just before the episode of the pudding eater, I suppose, interviewed by the ancient head of the asylum, who, having me there under certificate from my family, had no opinion to pronounce on my mental condition, but simply to accept me as a madman, worth a round sum a year to him, and be thankful. But for a certain episode which I shall in due course relate, I might not have found the man out. He was quite stupid, and had so muddled his venerable brain with the contemplation, I will not say the study, of insanity, that after five minutes' conversation, any two apothecaries from anywhere would have certificated him at once. He knew nothing on earth about me, saw me for the first time under conditions not perhaps exactly favourable to an impartial judgment, and afterwards, as I have before told, paid me occasional flying visits, which he spent chiefly in nodding and winking at me in a knowing manner, and treating the few words which fell from me as so many excellent jokes. He had heard that I was theatrically given, and humoured my shattered intelligence by taking every opportunity of telling me 
that he had once taken his daughters to the Adelphi to see Martin Chuzzlewit, or Nicholas Nickleby, I forget which, followed invariably by a little anecdote of one gross smith, an old entertainer, who was wont to imitate Charles Matthews, whose loss we are regretting now, so well that when Matthews once met him in the train and heard him talk, he said, If you are not Matthews, you must be gross smith. I think that was the story, but I grew rather addled over it at last, and I'm not quite sure. Gross Smith the Younger, who has since that time made for himself some name upon the stage, came twice from London to entertain us. An old stagelander, I seldom remember feeling so severely critical. Hyperesthesia, I think, is the medical alias for the quickening of the nervous perceptions which so curiously accompanies, and yet contrasts with, the odd sense of reality with which bloodlessness of brain invests everything. I listened to the performer's humours like a man in a dream, with a bitter sense of unconscious revolt as I recalled many happy evenings at the play and went drearily to bed, wondering more than usual how it was all to end. By an odd flicker of the old flame, I remember feeling as if it were incumbent upon me to go behind the scenes and present myself, but could not make up my mind to it. What would the actor have thought had he come behind the scenes with me that night, I wonder? Some months afterwards, I was watching him from a stage box, through the oddities of The Sorcerer, and it brought back to me with a shock the fearful place where I had seen him last, and made me throw an involuntary look round me to see if any warder was on the watch. The feelings of fear and shame, for it has in one's own, despite a sort of shame about it, that the experience left behind died slow and hard, and a chance association like this would curiously awake them. But I am keeping my old doctor waiting. He looked and moved, and I dare say he tried to believe himself the absolute incarnation of respectable benevolence. The frock coat, dark suit and white cravat in the initial stage of strangulation, which are to so many people a sort of badge of a doctor's degree in divinity, law or medicine, and the hallmark of a good heart, carried out the illusion. He began to do good-natured things at intervals, I suppose from a spasmodic sense that he might as well try to cure a patient sometimes, instead of leaving them all entirely to the salutary effects of association. He once proposed to go through a course of Greek Testament readings with me, and we accomplished an entire chapter, but dropped the cure at that point. My power of reading Greek at sight appeared to impress him much as by force of contrast with his insane patience it well might. But it failed to incite him to further efforts for my recovery and release. The Grossmith anecdote, to be taken at intervals, was an easier prescription. Though he had taken very kindly, however, to the work which he had accepted in life, he yet never gave me the impression of being altogether undisturbed by conscientious calms, and of having been able to silence the monitor, which must have pleaded at times so loudly within him. He was one of those men who never look one straight in the face, and though he had constructed a little chapel in the establishment where services were held on Sunday evenings, he did not attend those services himself. Perhaps he may have feared that prayers for prisoners and captives, and the solemn appeals to him 
who helpeth them to right that suffer wrong might stick in his throat like macbeth's amen he was happier in his own little house at some distance from the asylum where he lived with none of the unfortunates under his immediate eye he pottered about among a large variety of baby greenhouses which he had constructed on patterns of his own or made geological investigations under his fields where he had hit upon a vein of quartz or pints or something of which great things were to come little quarries were scattered all over the place and much lunacy must have been necessary to support them he was a great inventor the doctor and was much distressed by the evident want of mental power that i once showed by wandering helplessly from the point when he was expounding to me a plan for some stove which was to give heat without light or light without heat or both or neither i betrayed after a time an utter unconsciousness of what he was saying which i fear must have outweighed in the balance my mastery of the greek testament human nature is a parlous thing in moments even more confidential he explained to me how he had been an inventor from his youth and how one of the greatest discoveries of simpson of edinburgh had in fact been made by him and by him confided to his ungrateful colleague i confess that even in my sad condition of mental darkness i ranked this story with the class which at school we briefly summarized as little anecdotes which ain't true this acquaintance with my doctor and his ways was of a late date when kindly nature had given me enough of returning strength to be able to hold my own in ordinary talk with only occasional relapses into the light-headedness which survived the first long delirium when habit had begun to dull the edge of my helpless fear and robbed the hourly associations of my life of something of their unspeakable horror i was then hopeless of escape and had grown i think indifferent to it as to all who were supposed to care for me i had apparently become an object of indifference in the morn désespoir which had utterly taken possession of me i knew of no one to whom to appeal only those who had consigned me to the life could save me from it and what was i to say to them i was ill when they did it i was ill still why should they be anxious to convict themselves of wrong and of such wrong and so in my misery i let the days go by without wearing myself out still more by idle effort stupidly resigned to drift on my path like a wind-wafted leaf o'er the gulfs of the desolate sea the few visitors who fell to my lot had of course accepted their own foregone conclusions about my condition and every external appearance of the place was comfortable to the view under the paternal care of such a dear good old man with such pretty scenes to look at and such nice gardens to walk about in and a hotel-like sitting-room of my own i was obviously wicked if i was not very happy other visitors to that place there were who might have taken another view of things two friends of mine who had known me well in the old days came whilst i was there to see as it happened other inmates of the asylum both knew that i was confined there and both desired to see me one especially who had his suspicions in the matter made as i now know from himself every effort to make his way to me but it was not permitted in either case and i was given out as too ill to see anybody 
in the malady from which i was supposed to be suffering the sight of an old friend's face might well be thought one of the best of possible prescriptions i was not too ill it was a lie in all the facts of this piece of autobiography i know of none more damning the reports of my condition and the changes of it were to depend upon the doctors who lived on us and the ignorant warders who took their first cue from them and the three relatives who had taken upon themselves the responsibility for my imprisonment my first impressions about the principal were funny as i have said i did not realize where i was i did not know that i was in an asylum i did not understand what the curious people about me were the only living soul i knew in the place was the servant of whom i have spoken whose presence there was perhaps partially the reason for my failing to grasp the situation i had of course no ground for supposing that he was out of his mind or means for understanding why he should quarter himself in an asylum he assured me i think that where i went he would go out of personal devotion but as he took the opportunity of enrolling himself among the asylum warders and treated me with a curious brutality happily limited by inadequate physical means to carry out his views i was myself so wasted that a child might have maltreated me and only a brute would i must have my doubts upon the matter it was with a strange sense of relief that one morn i missed him from the accustomed haunts and learned that he had departed for india in charge of the black gentleman who was translated ad eundem elsewhere i suppose as some of us occasionally were it is a comfort to reflect that the black gentleman was of a vigorous build and capable of resenting impertinence i hope that he availed himself of his opportunity as the man-monkey did and employed personal arguments the fancies of my bewildered brain chased each other like shadows sometimes i thought that this odious being was judas iscariot his surname remotely resembled the word judas sometimes when he had told me how fond he was of me and i was trying to dwell upon the pleasant fact that he was a brother of mine who had died in infancy and come back to love me in the absence of anybody else chance likenesses were enough to invest any of the weird faces round me with a name and identity of my own making and when at night thick coming dreams of the most vivid kind through all of which i am told my sleep seemed as placid as a child's invested phantoms with such reality that i was unable to separate mentally the visions of the night from those of the day the confusion of brain through which i lived may be imagined i have attempted to describe how in their shocking lack of human characteristics some of my companions assumed for me the semblance of animals about my own identity i felt puzzled and was a good deal occupied in arguing out with myself who i might be from various insufficient data the state is of course very common in delirium and was in my case very natural a short time before i had been the possessor of home family name and friends and at the time when i needed all these most i suddenly found myself an unregarded cipher a worn-out garment cast aside as unowned as joe at his crossing and robbed of man's right of freedom without the mockery of a trial 
when imprisonment was a form of cruelty which needs a new name. So completely was I forgotten that when at last I came to life again, it was to find a three years arrear of unopened letters piled up in my old chambers, for which no one during my illness had even taken the trouble to inquire. They read to me then like messages from another world. Some favourite pictures and my writer's chair, the unambitious law library, which I had once owned, and a set of handsome and valued Harrow prizes, had vanished altogether, and nobody was to blame. It was the doing of a company, I suppose, but I had clearly no business to reappear upon the scene. I did not like it, though. Knowing myself in keep and hold, and not knowing why, it was natural that I should invest the asylum with the attributes of a jail. I have said that I expected to be handcuffed in the train, and when, on the first evening, a fierce-looking man rushed at me with a dark blue ribbon, asked me what I meant by not wearing one, and declared, with a sense of personal offence, that I was not the least like my uncle, I took him for the master jailer, and mentally christened him Rocco, in the odd dramatic vein which would run through my thoughts. This blue ribbon, worn in honour of the university boat race, and the fact that one of my first memories is that I found a hot cross bun placed by my bedside for breakfast, in sympathetic honour of one who died to teach us love and mercy, are the two things which enable me to fix with accuracy the date of my imprisonment, as about the Easter tide, now nearly four years ago. The terrible probation that followed seems to me now to have cut my life into two parts, as completely I am conscious to myself of its having changed my whole character, and stamped and remoulded it in a new and other cast. Such furnace fires as these must do so. They make the common trials of our race seem ludicrously small, and I find myself looking with a certain quaint wonder at people who talk to me of their hard experiences of life. With what a sense of gratitude I find myself unembittered, however justly and strongly resentful, where other feelings would be out of place. Regarding my fellow creatures from the pleasantest point of view, and the world generally in the light of the laughing philosopher, I cannot say. Trials are like pills. The taste depends on how you take them. I have been very frank with my readers about the strange fancies which took possession of my brain. No one of them who has known what it is to lie sick of a fever, or has ever seen others lying so, will be surprised to read of them. But in a lunatic asylum, these common signs of a common illness are called delusions. I was talking once during my interval of freedom over the position in which I was placed with one of the three doctors who had vouched for my soundness of mind, who has justly won for himself a great name among those who have in worthy earnest studied the diseases of the brain, as far as it is given to man to study them. He spoke to me of private asylums with shrinking and with dread, and in my hypochondriac days had warned me as a friend of the dangers that might await me. Travel, he said, do anything rather than give way. If once you find yourself in an asylum, heaven help you, 
and when I spoke to him later of the things that had been said of me, I know the word delusions too well, said he, and the use that is made of it. I did not, then. But when, after my final deliverance, I found myself accused by those who should have helped and shielded me, in every way of being under delusions, as to their conduct towards me, I learned to know. I discovered this indirectly through others, and would not at first believe it. But it is true, like the rest of the story, and like the rest of the story is so set down. They say it everywhere, and they may be saying so still, and I have long known that they did not scruple to say it. There let that part of my subject end, for I sincerely trust that it lies outside of human experience. But it is a possible consequence, remember, of this abuse of law. In the general state of confusion, which, launched as I was into this very novel state of existence, took possession of my faculties, and seemed almost to supply a meaning and coherence to the old rhyme, supposing I was you, and supposing you was me, and supposing we all were somebody else, I wonder who we'd be. The raison d'etre of the old physician puzzled me exceedingly. Sometimes I took him for a superior being in charge of the prison, sometimes for a divine, sometimes for the evil one, and sometimes for a butler. When labouring under the last impression, I resented some question he thought it his duty to ask me, and his attempt to bar my peaceful passage from one room to another. I am afraid that I took him by the collar and put him against the wall, perhaps, under the circumstances, a pardonable excess. The assault was not dangerous. There was nobody living at that moment, I think, who could not have knocked me down with his little finger. But from that time I was regarded and entered in the books as homicidal. End of chapter 4